You're listening to a podcast from JNIS. Well, I'd like to thank Rob Tarr, JNIS, and BMJ for giving us this opportunity to produce this podcast. My name is Josh Hirsch, and I'm an associate editor of the JNIS. JNIS has been, from its inception, interested in issues related to healthcare policy and socioeconomics, and throughout our short history, we've published many articles on point. Two articles we're going to review today come from that socioeconomic slash healthcare policy arena. The first one came from an interesting discussion that happened, I would say, at an alternator, but that would date me. In fact, we were talking amongst our faculty about the things that are going on with component coding, and one of the members of the team said, I'm not really sure I know very much about this, and one thing led to another, and after discussions, we decided to write that up because we thought it was important for the neurointerventional community to learn more about what was going on with component coding. To our further surprise, as we talked to additional doctors, additional neurointerventionalists, and frankly, interventional radiologists, we were um, interested to learn that there was a general lack of familiarity with the processes of how we get paid through the ruck. So the two articles we'll be discussing today are entitled, One, Component Coding and the Neurointerventionalist, A Tale with an End. That was published online in December of 2012. And the second is The Ruck, A Primer for Neurointerventionalist. And that was published in January of 2013. I'm indeed very fortunate to be joined by two luminaries in the areas of healthcare policy and reimbursement. Bill Donovan has been a neuroradiologist in private practice in Connecticut for 16 years. After completing his residency and fellowship training in New York Hospital at Cornell, he went up to the same position he's been working at in Connecticut for all this time. He's been involved in ASNR and ACR economic issues for about a decade, including serving as the ASNR advisor and alternate advisor to the RUC for several years. He currently serves as chair of the ASNR Economics Committee, the chair of the ACR Reimbursement Committee, and as the alternate member of the RUC for radiology, a very important position. Dr. Zeke Silva is a Texas native who actually spent time up here in Boston when he did a fellowship at Massachusetts General Hospital in vascular and interventional radiology. Unfortunately, you can't mess with Texas, and he didn't stay up here in New England, though we would have loved to have kept him. He moved back and took a job in San Antonio, where he is a practicing member of the South Texas Radiology Group. Indeed, locally, he has positions with the Texas Radiologic Society, where he serves as treasurer and Uh, He is also treasurer to the TRS Foundation. He has regularly been in front of the state legislature and the Texas Health and Human Services Commission. Dr. Silva is the vice chairman of the ACR Commission on Economics and is a founding member of the board of the Neiman Health Policy Institute. He chairs the Reimbursement Subcommittee, the Practice Expense Subcommittee, the Value Added Subcommittee, and holds a seat on the ACR Coding and Nomenclature Committee. He also serves as an ACR advisor to the Relative Value Scale Update Committee, which is what we're talking about today, the RUC. Both men are incredibly well-recognized, incredibly well-published. I so appreciate them joining me, and I think this is going to be a terrific podcast. Gentlemen, welcome. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Josh. Well, I think we should start with a very basic question, and perhaps, Zeke, uh, you'd like to start with this one. What is the RUC? 
Josh, it's a great question. And to understand what the rock is and to understand the role of the rock, it's important to understand what's referred to as the RBRVS, the Resource-Based Relative Value Scale. And if we look back at the Medicare program and we look back at how services, physician services were paid within the Medicare program going back to its inception from around 1965 when the program was created through the late 80s, payment for physician services across all specialties was based on customary or local charges. Well, not surprisingly, there was significant geographic variation. There was significant differences in, in payment and expenditures for the agency and for the program increased over time. So in the late 80s, the government created the RBRVS, whereby payments would be established nationally, and those payments would be based on the resources necessary for physicians to provide those services. So the task, task of the RUC, or the Relative Value Scale Update Committee, is to maintain the RBRVS. Now, the RUC is a committee of the American Medical Association. The RUC is an independent body acting upon its First Amendment constitutional rights to petition the government. And this is important because it is not an advisory body in the sense of a governmental advisory body. So the question is, what, who constitutes the RUC? What is the membership of the RUC? Well, the RUC is 31, mostly physicians, but also allied health professionals, 31 members, 21 of whom are appointed to the panel based by the medical specialties themselves. And the specialties which hold quote-unquote permanent seats on the RUC are specialties with a high percentage of physicians in patient care, a high percentage of Medicare expenditures, and includes specialties, internal medicine, family practice, um, general surgery, and the like. Radiology is fortunate to have a permanent seat on the rock through the American College of Radiology. And as, as you mentioned, Josh, in the introductory comments, the advisor to the rock is Geraldine McGinty, who is a radiologist in New York, but we're certainly privileged to have, as you mentioned, Bill Donovan as our alternate advisor to the, or alternate member to the panel. Uh, representing us three times a year at the RUCS meeting. So, and, and Bill, I would defer to you if I left out any other information about the RUC, being that you're actually on the panel itself. Uh, but I will, again, point out that the RUC meets three times a year, and our primary task is, is maintaining the RBRVS for both new services, which are presented to the RUC for valuation and enter the physician fee schedule, but also potentially services that exist but could go through revaluation. So... That's a that's a great introduction, Zeke. And perhaps, Bill, as you think about filling in any holes from uh, Zeke's comments, you could also uh, inform our audience more broadly of the fact that in their in their world, in their day-to-day -day practice, they've heard of CPT codes, they've heard of RVUs. How do these things relate to the activities of the Rock if they do at all? Sure, Josh. Uh, everything that medicine does, at least organized American medicine, is generally reported by means of a CPT code. That's current procedural terminology. And that is a process that's basically owned by the AMA. And so there is a separate group called the CPT editorial panel that meets to discuss the creation of new codes that describe new technologies or 
that also revise codes for existing technologies and procedures. So um, most of the major, or all of the major um, professional medical societies send representatives to both the CPT meetings and the RUC meetings, and sometimes they have a code that is being discussed, and sometimes they don't, but other, they're there for other to monitor other policy issues that may get discussed and decided at those meetings. So let's say you have a new technology, a new gizmo, and you want to be paid for it by Medicare, and then when Medicare decides to pay for it, hopefully all the other private insurers will decide the same thing. Um, you would present a proposal to the CPT editorial panel, and if all goes well, they will explicitly describe the procedure that you are um, going to perform with that new gizmo and uh, give it a number, the CPT code, in other words. Um, then that code, before it can be used, has to be valued and has to be valued in that relative value scale that Zeke mentioned. Um, that, this, that is a valueless scale, so it doesn't have specific units attached to it. It's just relative in terms of how it stacks up against all the other things that uh, surgeons and physicians do, um, as well as allied health professionals. Um, so your new gizmo, your new technology, your new CPT code will then get valued at the next RUC meeting. And your representatives from your specialty society will make a proposal at that ne next RUC meeting, and that'll be done on the basis of surveys that you send out to your, to your membership, and you'll get back that information, you'll analyze it, you'll present it in a very standardized form that's been established over the years. And that's the resources. It's designed to establish what resources are necessary to perform that procedure in terms of time, in terms of equipment, in terms of stress and intensity level and difficulty of performing the procedure. And then the RUC will debate, decide, accept the society's recommendation, not accept it, amend it, but end up coming up with a number, a relative value unit number, um, where it'll fit into that relative value scale. And then they'll make that recommendation to CMS or Medicare, and uh, Medicare may accept or reject it. But traditionally, over the years, they've accepted a vast majority of the RUC's recommendations. That's been slipping some in recent years. I think that was yeah. terrific. Zeke, did you want to make any further points regarding the background of the RUC, CPT, or RVU? No, and, and that was a, a very good summary. I think one point that's important to recognize about the RUC is that it is an independent body. And what I mean by that is even though the members of the RUC are appointed by given specialties, when they are wearing their quote-unquote RUC hat, when they're representing that panel, they're evaluating services across all specialties and even within their own specialty completely independently. And so when, when Bill Donovan sits on the panel and he is voting on other uh, specialties or even our specialties code proposals, he is doing so as an independent individual representative. Now, in contrast, there is an advisory body, and it, it's an advisory committee that, that presents recommendations on behalf of the specialties to the RUC. And I coincidentally serve as the advisor for the ACR to the body. And when I'm presenting I'm anything but independent. I am an advocate for radiology. I am representing radiology. I am taking the survey data along with another panel, a panel of experts, including physicians practicing or others involved in the process, and presenting those recommendations to the RUC in a 
back and forth discussion, if you will, to ensure that they're appropriately valued, they're appropriately uh, resource-based, and, and, and what it, in, it incur, incurs for physicians to provide those services is recognized. And it, it's, a, it's an interesting dynamic when you're sitting around a table with 31 other physicians independently representing this panel to whereby those discussions uh, take place. Well, well, thank you, Zeke. And by way of clear disclosure, Greg, Nicole, and I share that uh, honor for the American Society of Neuroradiology. And um, it's not always the, the most comfortable environment uh, to spend your uh, morning or afternoon in, but I think it is important for our specialty. It raises another question, one that I'd throw to both of you, and I, I don't think we can spend too much time on it because we are covering two different articles, but reading the lay press or, for example, the uh, National Commission on Physician Payment Report uh, that came out just earlier uh, in the month, there are concerns, re the ongoings of the RUC. And I would uh, pose the question, should neurointerventionalists care that there are challenges to the RUC? Um, at times, neurointerventionalists haven't necessarily been happy with the decisions of the RUC and or CMS, so is it a problem if it gets replaced with another uh, type of approach? I throw it to both of you. It's actually a multifaceted kind of question when you, when you get down to it, um, Josh. Uh, so let me start with a basic answer, which is yes, neurointerventionalists should be interested in what goes on in the RUC, um, as should all physicians. Of course, it's easy to say. It's it's hard to do because so many physicians don't really have a sense that there's anything they can do in the big payment policy arena. Um, in fact, all the specialty societies um, have some people working in the economics sphere, and the not only the largest ones but also very small ones will send representatives to the RUC and to CPT. And um, it's easy to get involved with these groups if you go to your national meeting, or you may be able to do it on a state or regional level, or you may start getting interested in this sphere just in, in your own practice by finding out who's doing the billing and who's organizing that, and it can open up this whole world to you. The RUC has valued services and been influential in, in, in payment policy for going on 20-plus years. There has been recent criticism in not just the lay press, but also from such bodies as, as MedPAC or the, the Medicare Payment Advisory Commission, um, the GAO, the Government Accountability Office, based on uh, some review of the valuation of services within the relative scale. And that's led to a, to a, a couple of actions by the RUC, which are, which are quite significant to neurointerventional radiology, but, but all of medicine in general. And that is an increased focus on not just valuing new services appropriately, but focusing very strongly, very aggressively on the existing services within the RBRVS. And understand that when the RBRVS was created, there was a statutory mandate at that time that every five years, the RBRVS would be reviewed to ensure accuracy of the valuation of the codes. And it's been, it was generically referred to at that time as the five-year review. And it took place literally every five years. More recently, the five-year review has become more of a rolling five-year review, whereby it happens continuously. Every meeting that the RUC holds, 
there is time dedicated to discussing, quote, potentially misvalued, close quote, codes within the RBRVS, but also effort to resurvey those codes, restudy those codes, make new recommendations, not just to the RUC and CMS regarding those codes. And it's been pretty significant to radiology, to interventional radiology, and particularly neurointerventional radiology. And, and, I'll, and I'll expand on that and tell you why. The system whereby, and this is a, an important part of the component coding article, a, a system exists whereby neurointerventional services are reported called the component coding system. And the component coding system allows a larger total service given to a patient to be reported based on the individual components necessary to complete that service. So for example, a, a four-vessel cervicocerebral arteriogram whereby multiple different vessels are selected with a catheter, multiple different vessels are interpreted from an angiographic perspective, whereby potentially an intervention subsequently occurs, there are different codes within the component coding system to report each individual selection, to report each individual SNI code, surgical and um, interpretive code for that diagnostic angiography based on 2000, 12 coding. Now, what happened in 2013 was because those individual codes were identified by a screen as potentially misvalued by what was previously referred to as the five-year review work group and is now referred to as a relatively relativity assessment work group, those codes were completely revamped, completely rebundled, or bundled, I should say, into a new new codes describing a total surface. So as many of us in the specialty know, the new codes for 2013 describe not individual components, but a complete service whereby, for example, catheterization of the internal carotid artery is performed and diagnostic angiography is performed of the intracranial circulation. That is now a single code rather than being two separate codes. There, there are many important aspects to why this is significant for us. One is anytime a new service comes before the RUC, by definition, there's the possibility that the value paid or the amount paid for that service will decrease. And that actually happened with the carotid codes. If you look at their RVUs, the relative value units whereby they're paid currently in 2013 compared to what they were paid in 2012, the reductions were fairly significant. Secondly, there's the possibility that you lose the granularity, you lose the um, ability of the component coding system to accurately report, report services which are by definition as heterogeneous as neurointerventional services. So if you think about a neurointerventional starting a procedure on a patient for a clinical reason, oftentimes that neurointerventionalist has an idea of what he or she will perform thereafter but what they actually do will be based on the findings during the procedure, will be based on the clinical circumstances of the patient during that procedure, and what eventually is, is finds itself to the radiology report may be completely different than what they could have or would have predicted would have could have occurred with that procedure. So the component coding system allows that granularity. Well, now, if you're mandated or you only have available to you a handful of bundled codes, there is a possibility that the clinical services provided will become unreportable. And I'll give you an example. 
So if we did a study of the vertebral artery, looking at the posterior circulation of the brain, selected that vessel, studied the intracranial circulation, that service has a specific CPT code. If, for whatever clinical reason, the physician at that point decides that they need to study the thyrocervical trunk, the ascending cervical artery, or potentially the upper extremity, there is not in the current coding system a way to report those additional selections. There's no established guidelines. There's no uh, established precedent. There's no established guidance from really even the ACR from ASNR how, how that services would, service would be reported. And it's not insignificant. It's significant, one, from a payment perspective, but it's also significant from a statistical perspective. If you think about the CPT system and why it was initially created, it wasn't, frankly, created to allow doctors to get paid for what they do. It was created to allow the statistical evaluation across large volumes and ranges of patients to look at utilization, to look at epidemiological studies, to look at outcomes based on the codes that were provided. And in many ways, we're losing that system. And I think it's up to neurointerventionalists and it's up to physicians to be to represent themselves in at the rock, at the CPT, at those bodies to ensure that payment policy and payment directives and, and desired payment outcomes, i.e. less payment for certain specialties, potentially over the other, not overrule the importance of clinical study, epidemiology, emerging technologies. And I think that's a role where we as physicians should be front and center. Well, thank you, Zeke. That was a very uh, comprehensive answer. And again, to, to repeat, one of Zeke's bona fides, as well as Bill Donovan, as well as my colleague Greg Nicola, who's not on the call, as well as many others, is that they sit in front of the ruck. In addition to all the preparatory work, they sit in front of the ruck and defend these um, these uh, codes and services that neurointerventionalists provide. Swinging over to Bill, Bill, in the discussion on component coding, we heard uh, Zeke reference bundling a couple of times. The way he mentioned it makes us think it's probably not the best thing in the world. But if you could clarify for our audience, if bundling means A plus B equals C, and C is what comes from adding A and B, is it necessarily bad? There was a time when, when uh, we were not supposed to bundle back 15, 20 years ago, and now that's come sort of in a 180 degrees, and uh, bundling is the rage as far as Medicare, RUC, and CPT is concerned. And they're doing this because of this particular potentially misvalued code screen or filter that uh, CMS suggested that the RUC and CPT look at. And this particular filter is codes reported together a certain percentage of the time. And it started by looking at all the CPT codes that are reported on the same Medicare patient on the same day by the same physician 90% of the time. In other words, two separate codes, but they get reported together a lot. Um, we've worked through that family, and I'll explain a little more what that means, but now we're at the 75% code together screen, and there are so many families of codes that, this, uh, that fall into this filter. It's actually scheduled out for three, four years looking at all the different 
ways uh, as to whether these codes should be sent to CPT for creation of new bundled codes. The thought, obviously, is that if, if you're reporting two services 90% of the time or more together on the same patient same day, well, then it's not really, they're not really separate services. They're components of the same service. At least that's the theory that's driving this. As it turns out, on a practical basis, this affects radiology vastly more than any other specialty or group of specialties because of component coding, the component coding structure that was uh, elegantly developed 20 years ago to describe every small detail of an interventional procedure. It's now come back around in a sense to haunt us. There are certainly other specialties that do other procedures and tend to do procedures together um, the way that the CPT code system has been set up, but it's not that common and other specialties by and large don't have this component coding structure that radiology has benefited from all these years. So this screen or filter is really hammering the radiology community in general, the interventional radiology community in particular, neurointerventionalists as, as well as others. I think it's important also for those who aren't that familiar with the, the RUC and the RBRVS to, to realize or just to be re reminded that, that Medicare is a zero-sum process. There is a certain amount of money supposedly that gets allocated for payment of Medicare bills every year. So when a particular code is up-valued or down-valued as far as its, as its relative value unit value, that will suggest that that means everybody else and every other code and every other specialty is going to get paid slightly less if an RVU for your code goes up slightly. If an RVU for your code goes down, then theoretically there's more in the pot for everyone else to, to be paid based on their code's uh, values. So that's why the RUC is such an interesting political process. Um, on the one hand, no one wants to see other specialties' code values go up. On the other hand, you have to be, as a RUC member, uh, objective and fair, or else you'll find that uh, other members may not appreciate the, the attitude that you might show towards other, towards other specialties. So it, it actually turns out to be a sort of a self-governing process whereby the, the RUC members do stick to the book and there is a very standardized way of looking at how codes should be valued, and they do tend to um, be objective uh, as they can despite the fact that they are being nominated and, and in a sense represent their specialty. Those are, those are great comments and I, I would actually just make a couple of clarifying remarks to what uh, Bill and Zeke just said. So the component coding affects proceduralists that do these types of procedures. So if it's an endovascular uh, vascular surgeon or a endovascular neurosurgeon, they would be impacted in terms of these procedures in the same way that radiologists would. The component coding system was not necessarily established to benefit the uh, billing and coding aspect of what we do. Rather, as Zeke mentioned earlier in the call, it was established in order to allow for a more granular, in fact, correct approach to billing and coding. So the challenge posed by the question earlier, which is what's wrong with saying that A plus B equals C, is that even though A and B have been explicitly valued for purposes of component coding, 
meaning they have a value that should be independent of the other. When they are bundled, they are nearly invariably, nearly invariably diminished in value. Zeke gave the answer of the, or the example of the cervical cranial angiography. Other examples abound, and they include the IVC filter, and that is actually laid out in tabular form in the uh, end of component coding uh, paper. Part of the problem that the radiology community is facing and that the interventional and neurointerventional um, community is facing is that a lot of the component codes were valued quite a while ago, uh, 10, 15, uh, even 20 years ago, some of them dating back to the beginning of the RBRVS. Um, now, the way things are valued, it's it's a, a big component of that is time. How much time does it take to do a procedure? Twenty years ago, the way that the information was gathered from the um, members of a society and the scrutiny with which that time was assessed and, and looked at um, didn't exist to the same extent that it does today. And because it is so such an important factor in the valuation of a procedure, um, it's critical that the surveys that we send out, that the sites send out to their members, um, be returned, be filled out by those members and returned with as accurate a picture as possible of, of how this happens. And we get the sense, looking back, that it, it wasn't that scrupulous a while back. And also, a lot of the procedures that we do now uh, that are routine weren't so routine and weren't so uh, we weren't so um, capable uh, 20 years ago so they actually took longer the problem therefore when a lot of these component codes come back to the ruck which they're forced to do once the new CP2 codes are created then they go to the next ruck meeting and are valued is that the time values that we're getting back from members may be entirely accurate and appropriate, but they don't tend to match the time values that are in the database from 20 years ago. And, and some of that is, is because it took longer then, perhaps. Some of that is because uh, the RUC didn't focus on time as much back then, and so things were, shall we say, slightly looser. That's the other reason why A and B, as they currently exist, don't end up adding up to C when it gets valued at the ruck these days. And so almost any time there's a bundling process, as you mentioned, um, the value comes down and it means less reimbursement for that uh, group, for that facility, for that site, for that hospital, compared to um, the other specialties and their procedures and their codes in the ruck world and in the CMS uh, reimbursement arena. By nature, component coding then matches codes with each other as you perform a service. Certainly SMI codes are matched with procedural codes. So it is understandable and in fact predictable that interventional codes will continue to be caught up in these screens that were referred to earlier in the call. This is a problem that will uh, continue really through almost all of the interventional codes we believe. So listening to these discussions, it seems to me that both the discussion and the article points to a seeming inevitability to the disappearance of component coding. Am I reading that correctly? Is that correct? Could either of you elaborate on that point? We'll start with Zeke. Clearly, as we've shown, component coding is under attack. The main screen that is leading to these codes being 
restudied, restructured, revalued as, as we've discussed, the reported together screen. And that screen started at 95% reported together. And that was the screen that actually caught CT the admin and CT pelvis when report, reported separately and led to the bundling of CT admin and pelvis into a single study. The screen then went to 90%, and now it currently, and we discussed this in the column, is currently at 75%. So I think any code from a component coding perspective that's reported with another code the majority of the time, certainly 75%, but probably greater than 50%, is susceptible to being re-reviewed and restructured and potentially devalued. Now, we mentioned earlier, and Bill mentioned this, that we're not only looking at, at the RUC at codes which are reported together other screens, but we're looking at total Medicare expenditures, which makes sense. If you're going to dedicate resources to restudying services, you want to dedicate those resources where you're going to get the most bang for the buck, if you will. So you're going to want to look at services that are performed frequently within the Medicare population and result in higher expenditures and accordingly the potential for savings. So I think services that are component-coded greater than 50% of the time together that have relatively high expenditures, and I mean reported more than, say, a million times per year or more than 500,000 times per year, are going to be on the table. I do think there are a number of services where the component coding system will continue indefinitely, and I'm going to give you an example. And these are services where, one, there's enough heterogeneity in how it's performed that maintaining the component coding system still makes sense. So let's think about a biopsy of the liver. Most, many physicians will do a biopsy of the liver with CT guidance. Many physicians will do a biopsy of the liver with ultrasound guidance. Oftentimes, that varies patient to patient, not just physician to physician, based on the nature of the lesion and the goals of the procedure. So in that case, it makes complete sense to have a separate surgical code for the biopsy and a separate SNI code or component code that's reported with that, one specific for CT, one specific for ultrasound, and frankly, for example, in the case of a medical non-focal biopsy, to not even have an SNI code reported with that at all. The second population where we probably will see component coding exist into the future is the scenario where two different physicians are doing two different components of the procedure. And I will tell you, when the component coding system was created, this was one of the reasons why so many component codes were, were, were added to the CPT book and created under the premise that there were procedures where one physician would do the surgical component, perhaps the catheterization, and another physician would do the interpretive component, perhaps interpreting the angiography of the study. Well, let's think about within the neuroradiology community or, or population of services when that might be the case. And one might be myelography, where it's not completely uncommon for one physician to do the myelography injection that might be a non-neuroradiologist or non-radiologist that might be a general interventional radiologist in one setting whereby a fellowship-trained, more experienced neuroradiologist might actually do the myelography interpretation itself or might do, in the case where a CT scan or MRI follows, might do the second component of that procedure. And this is not completely uncommon in the community, and I think that, that I think that's a scenario where um, we may see component coding existing going forward. Thank you. 
physique. I think that'll swing us into another hot topic that um, we've touched on at various points. There are some groups and people who believe the ruck is not uh, a process whereby we should value physician services. We've read about that in the lay media and heard about it from organizations like the MedPAC and still others, actually. Bill, would you mind uh, speaking about uh, why there are some groups that are not as uh, impressed with the ruck as, for example, this discussion might suggest they should be, and Zeke, perhaps you could talk about changes coming with the Affordable Care Act, for example, like the IPAP, which parenthetically I might mention has been written about in another article in the JNIS, um, how they might impact on the, the workings of the RUC going forward. Well, thanks, uh, Josh. Let me see if I can um, sum this up in a, in a somewhat fair and objective um, fashion. The RBRVS, of course, was established in order to be very granular and very detail-oriented and, and to reflect physician reimbursement directly uh, related to the resources necessary to perform the service. Um, over the years, of course, with American medical costs skyrocketing and family physicians and internists feeling that they are underpaid relative to others and seeing fewer medical students going into their fields, they brought up the fact that the fee-for-service system in general seems to favor proceduralists, and that includes not only interventionalists but radiologists in general in their view, because they can basically accumulate the more, the more uh, codes they can bill, the more income will flow to them. The RUC, which of course is supposed to be an objective body that reviews the relative value scale, does have more proceduralists on it or specialists or subspecialists um, than primary care physicians. And so primary care the primary care community sees this as unfair, even though the RUC is a deliberative and objective body that doesn't have uh, power in and of itself other than making advisory uh, comments to CMS. They simply see that, well, if you can outvote the primary care people, then those proceduralists will keep things the way they are, which is unfair. Over the years, especially recently, the RUC and the AMA have responded to these complaints in a significant fashion. The ENM codes, of course, were revised, uh, what, uh, seven or eight years ago with a 20% increase. Um, in their values relative to everything else. Um, there was recently um, two new seats created on the RUC specifically for primary care individuals. The votes uh, of the RUC, which previously had always been secret, are now um, going to be published at some later date as far as just the numbers, although not the identities of those who voted which way. Despite this, uh, the lay press, as you mentioned, Josh, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and uh, Slate, and um, Health Affairs Magazine have all talked about the RUC in the past few years and have questioned whether it's really appropriate for this small body of physicians, wherein there are more proceduralists than primary care people, to be deciding the fate of Medicare payment. Of course, the RUC responds and the AMA responds that we're the RUC, not deciding anything. We make advice to CMS and CMS changes and does what it wants, 
the AMA and CMS and, and those of us who are involved would argue that you need physician you need physician input, you need expert input to discuss these very uh, complicated and detailed procedures and try and decide what's that worth relative to something else. One of the things that's been talked about um, in the um, PPACA, Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act, is the creation of an independent body called the IPAP. And I'm going to go to Zeke now because I think he's going to talk about that. But that would remove the valuation process from being primarily physician-oriented and physician-driven to a different body. That was a great introduction. As, as, as Bill said, the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act, when, when it was signed in March of 2010, was partly in response to the very criticisms to the ROC that the bill described. And if you think about the increase in expenditures which we've seen since the inception of Medicare or since the creation of the RBRVS, the impetus has oftentimes been to control physician utilization, to control increases in services by physicians. Well, now we're seeing a shift because the RBRVS didn't necessarily address growth because growth is still continuing. The sustainable growth rate formula, which was supposed to put utilization control into the hands of physicians, hasn't necessarily stem the tide of increased expenditures. The quality-based initiatives, and the jury is still out, but the quality-based initiatives have themselves not necessarily controlled expenditures. So what the ACA, the Affordable Care Act, created it did was two things. One is it created what Bill referred to as the IPAB, but the Independent Payment Advisory Board, which is a body. It will be it is 15 individuals on the commission. This is a presidential or political appointment. The panel has not yet been created. It's not yet been appointed. It will have to have Senate approval. And once that body of 15 individuals is created, they will have near complete autonomy to make changes to physician payment independent of the medical specialties, independent of physicians, and to some degree independent of Congress. Now, when the IPAB makes a recommendation, Congress can overrule that recommendation, but it takes a supermajority, which is almost unheard of in Congress, to, to reverse that recommendation or, or reverse that change. And if you think about MedPAC, the Medicare Payment Advisory Commission, which we referenced earlier, that also is an executive branch appointment that was also created by legislation. But MedPAC, when it makes a recommendation, that recommendation has to be approved through a bill going through both houses of Congress. In other words, it takes Congress to, init to initiate and enable that. The IPAP can basically do it on its own, and it's, it is concerning because the, the, whether the criticisms are accurate or not, the important aspect of the RUC is that it is a physician-driven American Medical Association process where not just physician valuation is discussed, but the important clinical ramifica ramifications of those changes are discussed. The second policy that the ACA created was a requirement that CMS, Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, enter into contractor agreements to independently evaluate the RBRVS, independently evaluate those RVUs, and do so in a way that's separate from the RUC process. And we weren't really sure when the ACA came out how this would take place, but in this last year's 
notice of proposed rulemaking where CMS released the rules discussing the future next year's valuation of services, they talked about it. And they said they were going to enter into an agreement with two separate contractors to um, confirm the valuation or validate RVUs within the RBRVS. So regarding the contractor agreements, the current proposal involves two separate contracting bodies, and I'm going to discuss how one of those is going to approach this process, and that's the Urban Institute. So what the Urban Institute is proposing for the study is they're going to pursue alternate alternative estimates of service level time. So we talked about how the RUC does a survey process. We talked about how the RUC survey data is interpreted by the specialties, recommendations are made, the RUC approves those, and they go to CMS. Well, independent of that process altogether, the Urban Institute is going to look for alternative estimates, and this is going to involve looking at OR or procedure room logs, looking at electronic health records, looking at scheduling records, looking at billing information, looking at chart medical information, direct observation, time motion studies, if you will, and they're going to take these alternative estimates of service level time, and then they're going to do a data analysis, and they're going to, going to confirm or study their time estimates compared to what exists within the RUC database or the RBRVS. And they're going to look at the proportionality of that. They're going to gather a clinical panel of experts, and they're going to look at what the potential clinical manifestations of that may be. So if a service that's commonly performed has its time increased by 50% or decreased by 50%, what may the, or what would the potential clinical implications of that be? And if they deem that those clinical implications are appropriate or negligible and won't affect quality of care or access to care, they may recommend applying that ratio across the entire family of services. So if you can imagine they studied, say, there were to study, say, a single procedure such as an MRI of a certain part of the body, and they concluded that some adjustment were necessary, they could easily recommend that that proportional decrease be applied across the entire family of MRI services. And if the IPAB is in place at this time, you can imagine a scenario where the IPAB would latch onto those recommendations and through no input from physicians, through no input from policymakers, through no input from Congress, that body could unilaterally enlist that change. And I, and I should add, when the IPAB makes its recommendations, those are going to be in response to specific cuts which are necessary based on actual actuary data that's going to come from CMS themselves, whereby they will be told that within the Medicare program to stay within spending targets, and this starts in 2014. In 2014, to, to stay within those targets, you are mandated as, a, as the IPAB to find recommendations to achieve those savings for the fee schedule for next year, which will be 2015. It's important to recognize that the ACA mandates that those cuts come from physician services until the year 2020. So none of the cuts that the Medicare program may require and may mandate in 2014 can come from hospital-based services. They have to come from physician services or they can come from other potential sources such as durable medical equipment, dialysis centers, 
allied health type services, physical therapy and the like, but they're not coming from the hospitals. The potential manifestations for any specialty within medicine, but particularly radiology and particularly interventional radiology and potentially neurointerventional radiology are, are, are quite daunting and quite huge and by no means insignificant. Well, that was a terrific answer. Thank you, Zeke. I think as we think about uh, closing this discussion out, I would ask you both to just comment. The SNIS is a, a small organization, obviously the parent of JNIS. We have representation through many friendly societies at the RUC, but we do not have specific SNIS representation at the RUC. How would an organization go about getting itself represented at one of these committees, having an advisor in place, et cetera? Well, um, Josh, the AMA has specific criteria that um, are not always crystal clear, but, but which they say uh, they, they hold um, dearly, which is a certain percentage of the society's membership have to be AMA members for that society to be, uh, as it's called, awarded a seat in the AMA House of Delegates. A seat in the AMA House of Delegates allows a society to then send advisors or representatives to the CPT editorial panel and to the RUC meetings. Um, that can be a high bar, and uh, my understanding is somewhere uh, in the range of 25%, and uh, Zeke, correct me if I'm wrong. It can be a high bar, especially because the general AMA membership amongst all physicians is declining. It's now between 20 and 25% is my understanding. And so it's just not something that says automatic as it used to be. Yeah. Um, if you can get your membership motivated and, and, and above that bar, then you can apply to the AMA for representation. Short of that, um, uh, SNIS, of course, is intimately involved with ASNR and is intimately involved with some of the neurosurgical societies and has representatives uh, on the executive board of, of ASNR and on various committees. And Josh, you yourself, of course, are a strong advocate for SNIS within the ASNR community. Um, and as such, can influence e economics, can, can represent those societies, can, can contribute to the conversation about payment policy and work valuation within the other societies, short, short of being able to represent yourself uh, there in, in this forum. Well, well, thank you, Bill. At this point, I'd like to once again thank Rob Tarr for inviting us, JNIS, for hosting such a podcast on healthcare policy issues, a little, a little divergent from our normal uh, conversations on these podcasts, but I think something the JNIS is getting no, known for. I hope you'll agree that uh, this was interesting, and you'll join me in thanking our discussants, Zeke Silva and Bill Donovan, who have given so generously of their time in order to speak with us today. Thank you very much. Thank you, Josh, and thanks to uh, BMJ. For more information about this program and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.